Happy Resurrection Day. I mean, if you think about it, if it wasn't for the resurrection, we wouldn't be here. Or we might, but we'd be a bunch of idiots. And, uh, but because of the resurrection, you know, yes, the death of Jesus paid the price of our sin, but his resurrection is what gives us life. And we walk in resurrection power. And so um, I, had one, I had one of these interesting God encounters yesterday. Um, they're always interesting, but uh, I had my message all done by Thursday, which is really unusual for me. And uh, so yesterday I was just going over the notes, and um, I'm, uh, long story, I'm Facebook friends with, with Melanie Green, and she had posted yesterday this uh, Facebook post that said, um, Keith Green, 11-year-old rock star on I've Got a Secret. Now, most of you have no idea what I've Got a Secret is, but I've Got a Secret is an old game show that used to be on TV. Um, and it's kind of like 20 questions. The person comes in with a, with a secret, and Steve Allen's the host, and there's four panelists, and they each have a minute to ask questions to try and guess what the secret is. And Keith Green, the Keith Green knows, secret was, is 11 years old, he was the youngest to ever sign a rock and roll deal with Decca Records. He signed a five-year contract, 11 years old, and four of his songs at 11 were published by Decca. And so I watched that, and... Um, all of a sudden, I was drawn to um, a DVD I have that came out in 2006, I think, that was uh, the life story of Keith Green. And so I just I just sat there and thought, you know, I'm done with my sermon. I'm just going to indulge. I'm going to watch this. And so it's about an hour and 15 minutes long. And uh, as soon as it was over, I go, that's it. And the Lord says, no, that's not it, because I don't want you to preach what you have already prepared. Um yeah, I, I want you to, to do something else. And so I'd already sent Michael the text. I was going to do, um, you know, Psalm 8 is the, the scripture Jesus quoted in the triumphant entry, and the Pharisees told him to tell the kids to shut up. And, and Jesus said, uh, <laughs> you don't get it. This is the kingdom, you know. This, this, is, this is what it's all about. And uh, the Lord took me to uh, John chapter 20, a, a pretty familiar passage. And it has to do with Jesus appearing to the disciples after uh, his resurrection. And uh, one of the things that always interests me about this, this passage here, it says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, and Jesus stood among them. Now, we got these 11 guys, and we, we already know that they are uh, wimps for no better term because as soon as they came and arrested Jesus, they all disappeared. None of them were there except John, who was there, you know, at the cross. And, uh, you know, Jesus, even in suffering and dying, is concerned about his mom. And he says, okay, John, I'm going, so I want you, it, it was a reverse, reverse adoption. I want you to adopt my mom as your mom. And mom, I want you to let John be your son. But what always intrigues me is the men are locked up in a room because they're afraid, but the women went to the tomb. And so that's where the soldiers were. The women weren't afraid. The women went to the tomb, um, and they were going there just to put, you know, perfumes on Jesus' body only to find him resurrected. And so this, this scenario starts that uh, the disciples are locked in a room, and they're afraid of the Jews, and because the Jews are the ones who've just crucified Jesus, and, 
And they knew that uh, they were after the followers of Jesus as well. Peter kind of, you know, pointed that out for us when he's standing there by the fire. And they start saying, we know that you're one of them. We can tell by your dialect. We can tell. We saw you with him. And so then um, this passage again. On the evening that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So we have this picture. And I just, Father, I just want to pray right now. There is a, that there's a reason you had me change the message. And uh, it's either for all in this room or for one in this room. But we thank you, Jesus, for your peace. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the purpose that you've given us in our life as we walk with you. And we just ask for your word to become alive in our hearts, God, and for us to leave uh, differently than when we came in. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's three things that happened when this, this happened. And, and let me tell you why I was drawn to this passage. As I watched that uh, uh, video yesterday of the life of Keith Green, I was reminded of how captivated he was by the gospel uh, to the point to where he forsook everything. Um, I'm not going to tell you his whole story, but, you know, he got the recording contract at 11. It never came, anything never came of it. And by the time he was 15, he ran away from home and uh, went on a journey to find God. He was Jewish, but he was raised um, Christian science. So great combination. And uh, so he went on a journey to find God. And... Uh, he was still extremely talented, and he had a reputation in the, the club scenes in Southern California. People would come, and they would pack out the clubs just to hear Keith play the piano and hear him sing his songs. And uh, then uh, Keith meets a, a guy named Randy Stonehill. They become really good friends, and Randy invites him to a Bible study in a home, and Keith gets saved. Uh, he meets Melanie there. They, they get married. And so, but he says, why do I want to sing my songs for the people in the church? They're already saved. I need to sing my songs where people aren't saved. So he kept going to the clubs, but instead of singing the songs he used to sing, he started singing songs about Jesus and how they needed to get saved. And uh, all of a sudden, he wasn't that popular. You know, <laughs> all of a sudden, the, 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 the bars were getting packed out because Keith was preaching in the bars, and, and pretty soon they weren't booking him. And uh, the, the founder of Sparrow Records had uh, heard about him from Randy Stonehill, and they gave him a contract, a long story there. But, but Keith's heart was this. He said, I wanted to take my music. I wanted to go where Jesus told me to go. You know, and he said, I just felt like at that time, and he was, I mean, it was the hippie time. It was the Jesus movement. It was the early 70s. He said, I just felt like, what's the use of singing songs about Jesus to people who already know Jesus? I need to go sing songs about Jesus to people who don't know Jesus. And uh, then then Keith really got a missions call, and he began to get frustrated with the church because the church was too settled in being the people who were being sung to. The songs about Jesus were being sung to the people who knew Jesus. And so he started writing songs about Jesus commands us to go. Talks about, you know, Jesus comes to your door and you send him away. You know, he, he talks about, he, he sings the parable, probably the most profound songs he did was the parable of the sheeps and the goats this 30-minute-long song where he tells the whole story. 
But, but it moved me again, yes, and reminded me that we cannot forget that we're not called to this room. We're called outside this room. And yes, we do pray for the nations. And yes, we do pray for people to come to Christ. But somebody has to tell them. And um, we need to get outside the walls of this room, and we need to tell people about Jesus in whatever the context of the place where we are, whether it's at work, whether it's whether you're fixing meals for the homeless, you know, and you keep telling them the same story about Jesus all the time. So I want us to look at this passage in this context this morning, and that there's three things that, that, that Jesus deals with, uh, three things he says. And, uh, but before he does that, there's three things he does. There's the, so he comes into the room. Like I said, the women had already gone to the tomb and, and seen him. And Mary Magdalene you know, had already encountered him. And uh, so it's the evening of the same day. And now he's appearing to his disciples. And there's three things you notice in the passage. Number one, the doors are locked. Uh, number two, the disciples are, are frightened. They're afraid. And uh, number three, Jesus is suddenly standing in their midst. And so I want to talk about why the doors were locked. Because I, I think there is, and an, an not that I'm a metaphor guy, but I think there's some metaphors here we can look at in our own hearts and lives when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. So the doors being locked, where the disciples were. Now here's the thing. Jesus didn't have to knock on the door. He didn't yell through the wall, hey, hey, this is Jesus, I'm coming in. He just showed up in their midst. You know, they were freaked out because they thought it was a ghost. They thought that the spirit of Jesus had all of a sudden shown up in the room. Uh, but he was there in the flesh, in his physical body. Not exactly like ours, but uh, it's, it's the same but different. That's why I love that passage that Michael read. I don't know if you've ever meditated on that passage before, but we're called, we're made of the man of dust. But by Jesus, we're, we're made into the heavenly man, the image of the heavenly man. We're in that process. Jesus came out fully dust and fully heaven. So he was fully flesh, but he was fully, he had this new body that he didn't want anybody to touch. And so he was there, and the first thing he says, see my hands and see my side. He wanted to know it wasn't his ghost. He wanted to know, no, it's really me. I'm here. Yeah, I know. I just kind of freaked you up and, and showed up. I didn't knock on the door. I didn't yell, say, hey, I'm coming in. I just showed up. But uh, so, so he wanted was that he was flesh. You know, John 20, 20, he showed them his hands and his feet. When Luke tells the story, he says, touch me, for the spirit does not have flesh and bones that you see that I have. And here's the thing. Today in our lives, Jesus can go in our life where nobody else can go. Nobody else at that time could show up in the middle of the room by not opening the door or not announcing themselves. See, Jesus can go in our lives where counselors can't go. Counselors may be able to direct us to a place where Jesus is. But he can take us to deep places that counselors can't take us. Jesus can go where doctors can't go. I mean, this morning we prayed for healing. We, we prayed uh, for my wife's hip. You know, the doctor's solution for my wife's hip is we're going to give you a new fake hip. You know, we want to do surgery, take out the one God made, and we want to give you one that we're going to make with titanium and plastic. But Jesus can go where doctors can't go, and he can form new hips. Jesus can go where no lover can go. Jesus can take us to a place of intimacy that nothing on this world can ever come close to. So Jesus can reach out to us. He can reach into us anywhere, anytime, for any reason. There's no place, there's no depth in our personhood that Jesus can't penetrate. I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you there is nothing in your life Jesus can't touch. There's no bondage you can't be set free from. You know, there's no sin you can't overcome. There's no sickness he can't heal. 
There's no despondency that he can't make joy. There's no turmoil that he can't turn into peace. Jesus can go where only Jesus can go. But unlike the disciples where he just showed up, we have to open the door to let him in. And so the, the resurrection from the dead allows him to do in our life what no one else can do. To go places and touch places no one else can touch. There's no one else like him in the universe. There is, he's alive. We just sang that. He's alive. He is the one and only God-man. And what he is capable of, we can't imagine, and all the complex layers of life that we can't understand, that's all familiar territory to him. Um, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And if we'll ask him, he'll tell us exactly. The Holy Spirit will show us exactly where along the way we've believed lies, where along the way we've picked up stuff we shouldn't pick up, and where along the ways we can take authority over that and we can walk in freedom. Only Jesus can do that. So he shows up no matter how locked your heart is. He'll show up and soften that heart. The second thing is they were afraid. The doors were locked because they were afraid. I, I don't know if I've ever had that kind of fear yet. I haven't been to a place where I'm afraid somebody's going to come in through my door and kill me. Uh, that's what they're afraid of because they just saw what they did to Jesus. And so um, th their leader had just been crucified. You know, he was a threat to, to Caesar. It's totally understandable that, uh, yeah, there was some, some sort of fear. But into the midst of their fear, at, I would say, one of their scariest moments, Jesus shows up. He walks in the middle of this fear because... And, and I, I focus on this right now because there's a lot of times, honestly, I'm afraid. You know, I'm not afraid of the dark, and I'm not afraid of, you know, the, the things I'm afraid of is um, I'm afraid I'm not going to be prepared to do what God expects me to do. That he puts in my heart things he wants me to do, and, I, and, and sometimes I go, are you sure it's me? Uh, you know, I'm, I, I just don't know if you got the right guy. Sometimes... I'm afraid that this community won't prosper. And, and when I say prosper, I'm not talking about growing number, and I'm not talking about getting rich. I'm talking about us doing kingdom work outside these walls, seeing God's life touch the lives of people who are so desperate and broken. Sometimes I wonder how my kids and my grandkids are going to handle persecution. And the truth of the matter is, I kind of wonder how I'm going to handle persecution. You know, we have brothers and sisters around the world right now that persecution is a way of life. We have brothers and sisters in Iran and Iraq. You know, they're, they're being killed every day for the sake of the gospel. We have families in North Korea, mothers who watch their children be murdered if the children won't renounce Christ or if the parents won't renounce Christ. And the mothers just comfort their children and say, don't worry, we're going to be together soon. I don't know if I'm, I, I'm afraid to have to face that. You can talk about it, but, but, I don't know if I have the faith to die well. One of my, one of my phrases that, that we used to say all the time in the 70s is that we want to live a faith worth dying for. I don't want to live a cheap faith. I don't want to live a faith that I think is all about me feeling good and being happy. I want to live a faith that's all about the kingdom. It's all about going. It's all about bringing the story of the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection into broken and hurting lives so that people know the love, the peace, the joy of what it is to walk in freedom. And Jesus is saying that he's willing to intrude in the middle of our fears. 
He was willing to walk right in the middle of these 11 guys, scared what was about to happen. And he says, uh, this is the way I come to my kids and they're afraid. He doesn't wait for them to get their act together. I'm so happy for that. I I'm so glad God doesn't wait for me to not to be afraid to show up. I'm so glad he doesn't wait for me to have it all perfect because if that's the case, I'm never going to encounter God. But God just shows up when I'm at my scariest moment. When in the midst of my deepest fear, he just shows up. He says, I don't wait for you to have enough faith to overcome your fear. He says, I come to help you to give you the faith to overcome your fear. That's exactly what he was doing there in the room with the disciples. He was saying, guys, you know what? The life you have right now is not life. What you're looking at is life. Don't be afraid to go through what I went through because look what happens when you go through it. You, you rise in power. You know, and in my more than, than 50 years of being a Christian, it's still true. I still have fears. I, I would like to say I don't. I'd like to say that, you know, I've, I've got it all together. I've overcome them. But that's not true. I still have doubts. There are days that I say, God, what in the world am I doing? You know, I'm afraid that I'm not doing the right thing because I got a few people following me. And uh, so, and, and he comes when I cry out to him in fear. I've called him a thousand times, Jesus, please help me. And every time he showed up, you know, he's never said no. You know, Isaiah 41.10 says, fear not, I'm with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will help you. He does this for everyone. He did it for the disciples right there. Think about how their fear was quelled at that moment. Now, they got a little more freaked out at the beginning. I mean, they're already afraid, and all of a sudden a ghost shows up, or they think it's a ghost, and they get a little freaked out. But as soon as Jesus says, peace, be still, and he says, look at my hands, look at my, my side, it's me. At that moment, peace filled the room. At that moment, they were no longer afraid because they encountered Jesus. And so here's what happened. Jesus comes to them and stands in their midst. Even though the doors are locked, even though they're afraid, that didn't keep Jesus from showing up. Jesus came right into the middle of their meeting. And as I read this, I kind of wonder what they're doing. I, I don't know about you, but, you know, we know they're afraid. We know the door's locked. So what's their conversation? Are they having a conversation? Are they sitting there going, okay, this is our strategy. If somebody knocks on the door, you know, we'll go this way. We'll go that way. What, I don't know what was going on, but, but according to Scripture, the room was still full of fear. And Jesus just shows up in their midst. And he didn't, you know, he didn't call out through the wall or, or knock on the door like some faraway deity. He just, he just showed up. He wanted them to see him, to know him, to believe in him, to love him. And that's what he wants for us today. He is going to show up all the time. He's going to show up no matter how difficult our day is, no matter how hard our life is, no matter how much physical pain we have or don't have, no matter how much we're crying out for our kids, you know, because we want our kids to follow hard after Jesus. You know, um, I, I have to say that of all the things in life, I mean, besides my salvation and my wife, the fact that my kids know and love Jesus, I can't tell you what that does to my heart. You know, I have friends. I know there are people, maybe in this room, that you have children that are wrestling with walking with Jesus. I, I don't, I'm so glad that that's not my concern. 
you know, my concern, you, you always have the concern, even when they're saved, you still have the concern. My concern is now, how are they going to stand, you know, when, when things start to get tough? But that's what he wants for us today. We want, he wants us to know that he's going to draw near to our lives when nobody else will. He's going to move into those places of fear that nobody else can touch. To have him help you in a fear in a way nobody else can. To have him come close to us, not calling out from a distance, but coming right in the midst of our heart, right in the midst of our being and say, here I am, don't be afraid. And that's basically what he does. He shows up and then he has a conversation and he says three very specific things. And all three things, he says them in an order because it requires them. The first thing he says is peace. The second thing he talks about is power with the Holy Spirit. And the third thing he talks about is purpose. And, and we have a tendency in our lives to think if we can find purpose and we can find power, we'll have peace. But that's not the order God's ordained. See, here's the three gifts God has for us, and this is the thing Jesus talks to us. First of all, the gift of peace, which is the opposite of conflict. If there's turmoil in your heart right now, if you're struggling with something, some of the things I've talked about, maybe some of the things I'm not so talked about. If there's conflict in your heart, you need to remember, he is the prince of peace. He is the one who comes to give us peace. You know, if, 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 if you feel like you're weak, he has given us the Holy Spirit. He says in Acts chapter 1, he says, and you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will receive power. If you're feeling weak and powerless in your life, we have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling within us to empower us, to give us the power to overcome, to confront, to encounter anything that comes across our path. He also gives the, the gift of purpose. And if you feel like you're kind of aimlessly walking through life, if you feel like you're at a place in your life where you go, God, is this it? This is what I was created for? There's nothing more? If you're walking in peace, if you're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you say, Holy Spirit, show me the purpose for what I'm doing, he's going to bring you and show you those things that God has created for that nobody else can do. So many, many lives are ruined by conflict, weakness, and aimlessness. And I would say that those are the, the, the three struggles in the church. People don't know how to overcome conflict. People walk in weakness because they think Christianity is simply about them feeling happy and, and having a good life. Or they're aimlessly wandering through life wondering, why am I here and what is my purpose? Jesus doesn't come into the world to die and to rise again to ruin your life. He didn't come into the world to die and to rise from the dead to ruin my life. He came to give me peace. He came to give me power. He came to give me purpose. He came to save us from ruining our lives by becoming the peace and the power and the purpose. So let's talk about these things that he says to them. In the midst of their fear, in a locked room, Jesus shows up in the midst, and he says the first time, and he says it twice. He says, peace be with you. Listen to what he says. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the door's being shut. You know, the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So he says that because they are freaked. They think a ghost just showed up. Then he said, when he had said this, he showed his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So before Jesus says anything about power, before he says anything about purpose, 
He wants to establish peace in the hearts of the disciples. And it's a twofold peace. It's a peace that comes from being not afraid, but it's also a peace that comes from knowing that there is power and resurrection for those who are following after Christ. The peace that Jesus offers his disciples, you know, um, it's, it's, it's that the order here is really important because we can't initiate peace by our actions. Our actions flow out of peace. And so the peace that Jesus offers is the peace that he accomplished on the cross. He says, I'm the one who died. I am the one whom you abandoned. I am the one who was pierced for your transgressions. So have peace. I overcame all of those, and here I am in your midst to prove it. The Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 of the 21 books in the New Testament, explains it like this. Ephesians 2, 14 through 18 says, He, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Jesus can offer them and can offer us peace because he covered all our sins by his blood. That's what this day is all about. You can't have peace without the blood of Jesus. You can't have peace without the resurrection. It is only by the blood of Jesus and by the resurrection from the dead that you and I can have peace. The peace that only Jesus can bring. If we trust him, our sins aren't held against us, and the wrath of God is turned away. And that's what Paul's saying here, thereby killing the hostility. He wasn't talking about the hostility of man. He was talking about the hostility God had towards sin. Jesus says, because I've come, and I've gone to the cross, and I've become your peace, and I've paid the price, if you accept the work that I've done, there's no longer any hostility by God toward you. There's no longer is God going to judge you for your sin because I took that judgment on myself. I took care of the hostility of God toward you. So you should have peace. All the hostility between God and us was absorbed on the cross. He said, look at my side. Look at my hands. I made peace with these. Justice was satisfied with these. Peace between you and God and me was established with these wounds. And so when Jesus says he gives us peace, he gives us peace, peace in five different levels, five different ways that as I sat and I, I, I meditated on this yesterday, there's five different areas you and I receive peace through Jesus. The first is this. There's peace between us and Jesus. He's standing there among them, offering himself as a friend and a helper and not a judge. You understand? I mean, think about this. When he showed up, he said, okay, guys, what happened in the garden? Where, where were you at my where were you at my trial? Where were you at the crucifixion? He could have said, you know, you have right to be afraid. No, he said, the first thing he says to them is, I want you to know there's peace between you and me. I'm not judging you. I'm not saying I don't understand. I'm just saying you don't need to be afraid anymore because I'm here. And I'm here for good. And, and here's how you can have peace. Look at my side. Look at my hands. I've overcome death. The second thing he does is he establishes peace between us and God. Because God sent Jesus... So God's justice and wrath could be justified um, another way without eternal punishment for you and I. See, I, I love the verse that says, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us first. 
How did, how did God love us first? God loved us first and that he came up with this plan of redemption. You know, it's, it, it says in Revelation chapter 12, it talks about how God preordained in his heart that his son would be crucified, that his son's life would be given in order that we might have life. That's always been part of God's plan. He knew that, you know, you get into the discussion, you know, if God knew Adam was going to sin and Eve was going to sin, why would he ever create him? God already, already had in his heart this whole plan of redemption worked out because, remember, there was another adversary he's dealing with. You remember when, when Satan fell, when he says, I'm going to exalt myself above the throne of the Most High, and a third of the angels went with him, there was a cry of injustice because they were removed of their responsibility and they were judged saying, you are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And there was this cry of injustice. And so God purposed in his heart before you and I were created, before, after, the, after Satan fell, he says, I'm going to show you what justice is. I'm going to show you how just I am as a God. So before you and I were created, before he said, let there be light, before he picked that dirt up off the ground in the garden and he breathed into that dirt and blew breath into it and Adam was formed, before he put Adam into a sleep and took his rib out and gave him a help me, God had already purposed in his heart that to show complete justice, he was going to sacrifice his son for the sake of those who would sin. God already knew it. He had already planned it. That's how strong his love is. That's how deep his justice is. And his justice is complete. And so, so that you and I would not have to suffer the wrath of the fallenness of Adam and Eve, so that you and I would not have to bear the consequence of our sin, he offered a complete, total sacrifice and payment for our sin to where all of his wrath was exercised towards Christ at that moment on the cross where Jesus is hanging there and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you ever listen to the conversations, they have this thing called the seven last words. You have these you know, Good Friday sermons. Every conversation on the cross is either with his mom and John or with his father. At that moment that your sin and my sin was put upon the shoulders of Jesus and God had to exercise his wrath and that he had to break fellowship with his son, eternal fellowship was broken at that moment because God could not have fellowship with sin. And at that moment that Jesus took all of our sin upon him, Jesus doesn't say, Dad, what are you doing? Dad, where are you? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, the relationship went from father and son to judge and sinner. And God turned his back because of his wrath on, the, on his son because he bore all our sin. And at that moment, eternity was separated. At that moment, God's true justice and true love was met out because he broke fellowship because your sin and my sin was upon Jesus. A profound moment. Jesus was crying out at that moment as a man who had fully taken on the, your sin and my sin. And that man became subject to God's wrath and justice because of our sin. And because of that, Jesus now stands in the midst of his disciples and he says, guys, no more turmoil. He says, I have reestablished peace between man and God. No longer is God looking at us through the actions of Adam, the first Adam. He says, God will now have fellowship with you like Michael read through the second Adam, through me. So it's a new beginning. It's a new day. So now you have peace with God. 
Secondly, we have peace between us and others who are in Christ. In other words, we, we are reconciled to God to be reconciled to all who are reconciled to God. Here's the bottom line. The, the, I, I didn't put the last verse in that, in, in that portion in John 20, but, but Jesus goes on to talk about forgiveness. And, and in the forgiveness, he's talking about a couple of things. He's talking about forgiving those who, you know, sinned, if, if you want me to forgive you. And, and obviously at that moment, he knew that the disciples had some hard feelings toward the Pharisees, toward the Romans, that there were some things in their heart that was unforgiving. And so Jesus dealt with this unforgiveness for them to be reconciled with their enemies, which had been what he had been preaching to them all the way up. It's very interesting that up until that moment, Jesus was always telling the disciples, come on, guys, follow me. Watch what I'm doing. Follow me. Come on, let's go over here. Then one day he says, okay, you've been following me for a while. I'm going to send 70 of you out, and you go, and let's see what happens. You go, and come back and tell me what happens. But his whole ministry was follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Until he takes their sin to the cross. Until he rises from the dead. And now he's not saying follow me. Now he's saying go. It's time for you to go. And the first place they had to go was to be reconciled to the very ones who had killed Jesus. Be reconciled to the very ones they were in that room hiding from. See, to be reconciled to God is to be reconciled to all who are reconciled to God. We are not allowed to have unforgiveness in the body of Christ. It's unpermittable. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is very, very clear about it. Not only did he say it here after he arose, but before he died, he says, here's the deal. If you don't forgive men, God is not going to forgive you. It's very, amen. <laughs> Go, kids. So, Here's what Paul says and writes to the church at Galatia. In God, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither, neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the prayer of Jesus in John 17. We are not allowed to have brokenness between brothers and sisters in Christ no matter what's been done. No matter what's been done. And we need to always remind ourselves, first of all, that Jesus tells us to love our enemy. But I have to remind myself of this often because I'll be honest, I have a hard time with forgiveness sometimes. And Jesus, in his gentle, loving way, always taps me on the shoulder and goes, hey, I just want to remind you, I love them as much as I love you. But wait, wait, wait. After what they've done, you love them as much as you love me. And he says, hey, after what you've done, yeah, I love you as much as I love them. We are not given the opportunity or the, the, the room to have unforgiveness in our heart. And the only way there will be peace with us and peace in our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what they've done to wound us, first and foremost, Jesus says, love your enemy. We have to love our enemy and love ourselves if we're truly going to love God. And that's how we have peace with God. This, the the, the uh, third area, fourth area is peace between us and our own souls. The writer of Hebrews says this, the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from dead works to serving God. How many people do you know? And you don't have to look at yourself, okay. How many people do you know 
that labor under the misery of a guilty conscience. How many people do you know that always feel like when they come before God, they can't come because he's going to see them as less than? That you measure yourself against other people and, and you hesitate to even go before God because you know what a worm you are. So he definitely knows what a worm you are. And so peace with yourself doesn't mean you start seeing past sin as desirable. Peace with ourself doesn't mean that the past sins cease to be painful. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden a memory comes up or a temptation comes up from something in the past that all of a sudden paralyzes us. The enemy, no matter how much freedom we have, the enemy is always going to try and take that freedom away. Every day. And no matter how much victory you have over a certain area in your life, there's going to come a day where he's just going to hit you at the wrong moment with the wrong thing, and you're going to go back and, oh, my goodness. Who am I? Why does God even, you know, how, how can he love me? How can he use me? You know, if the people in my community knew me like I know me, they wouldn't want to be my friend. And those are lies the enemy whispers to us, but, but we have to come to this place where we have peace with us. The pain sometimes, you know, may be taken away. The mental that may not be taken away immediately, but the penalty through Christ has already been paid. And we can be healed with a hope-filled life. So we need to know that part of our peace is also be at peace with ourselves. To know that God doesn't act as, ask us to be perfect. In fact, he's made it pretty clear. In his word, it says nobody's perfect. Not one of us is perfect. So if you think you are, let's wake up. If you think somebody else is, it's time to wake up. They're not. Jesus is the only perfect one. But God loves us in the midst of our imperfection. And so we can't measure God's love for us by our love for ourselves. We have to measure our love for ourselves by God's love for us. And so that, that brings us peace. The, the fifth thing, fifth area is peace with the world. When Jesus died, he did what needed to be done in order for the world to have peace. This is what it says, Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For it pleased the Father that in him, meaning Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Paul says we get peace through the blood of the cross. Someday in God's time, all evil is going to end up in outer darkness. Someday. The entire new creation will be full of peace and righteousness. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. With righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. There's going to be a day where peace will rule supreme. There will be no more darkness. There will be no more, no more enticement. Jesus will come, and he will recapture the earth, and we will rule and reign with him, and we'll have peace with Jesus. We'll have peace with God the Father. We'll have peace with others. We'll have peace with ourselves. We'll have peace with the world. But until that day, we have to continually go to him when we feel our peace waning. If there's conflict and turmoil in your heart, know this. You don't have peace. And if you don't have peace... You're not going to Jesus because Jesus is peace. If you need peace in your life, go to the Prince of Peace. He will bring peace to you. So how do we receive this peace? 
It's a gift. We can receive it or we can walk away from it. Or a better way to say it, we receive him or we walk away from him because he is our peace. If you have the risen living Christ as your Savior, Lord, and friend, you have the peace that he gives and the peace that he is. Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't have peace with God, we will take all his other gifts and try and use them to make peace. Now, I've said this before, but I, I just want to bring this point to mind. We have a bunch of Buddhist monks in Azusa who meditate daily for world peace. So there is a group of men and women. There's women up there with shaved heads too, all wearing their orange robes. And they're up there and they're meditating for one thing. They believe if they all get together and they have the right karma and they have the right energy going out, that as they meditate upon it, they will bring peace to the world. And once a year, they have Buddhist monks from all over the world come to Azusa. And they join together to bring all of their karma into one place and to meditate for an entire weekend for world peace. That day is this coming May. There'll be a day you'll drive up by the Dhammakaya Temple. The whole grounds will be filled with chairs. And you'll have all different colors of monks, well, I mean different colors of robes of monks, depending on what, what country they're from or what temple they're from. And they will all be there humming and chanting and doing all that they're doing for world peace. That's how the world thinks you can attain peace. You know, John Lennon, during the, the Vietnam War, you know, have this song, all we are saying is give peace a chance. That's all I'm saying. Give the Prince of Peace a chance. Because Jesus brings peace. He is peace. They invite other monks from around the globe to meditate with them. Every day they believe they can find peace without Jesus. Every day they believe they can bring the world peace without Jesus. The Bible says it will never happen without Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Same thing he's saying to the disciples. Hold up in that room, afraid. He says, look it, when you accept my peace, when you walk in peace, there is no fear. And after we have true peace... After we know Jesus is the Prince of Peace, after we know that no matter what we encounter in life, we have the confidence and the peace within to know that he is with us, he's not going to forsake us, then he empowers us. Listen what happens next. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's our purpose, to be sent. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. That's the power. Once you have peace with God, the power and the purpose fall into place, and you become, for no better word, a killing machine. You're just killing demons left and right, and people are coming to salvation. So by the power of the Spirit. So Jesus had already told them that he was going to pour out their spirit. He ascended to heaven. In Acts chapter 2, verse 33, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. This is Peter 
talking to the thousands who had gathered around that, upper, that building where the upper room was on the day of Pentecost, when they were there and they saw these tongues of fire come down and there's a wind blowing and all of a sudden they hear all these different languages coming out of the upper room and all of the people in Jerusalem all of a sudden are standing around this house and Peter goes out of the balcony and he says, men and women of Jerusalem. He said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Upon your women servants and your maid servants, I will pour out my spirit. He said, this is that. This is it. That's the promise of power. And so on that day of Pentecost, that power came down available to all. But at that moment in that locked room where Jesus is just with the 11, he breathed on them. He says it breathes and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. I already said Acts 1.8 says, you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus breathes on them like God breathed into Adam that moment he created him. Go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. When God in the days of creation picks up the dust of the earth that he's already created. And it says God breathed. He blew life into that dirt and that dirt became man. The word for breathe in both Hebrew and Greek is the same meaning, spirit. He breathed a spirit into us, into Adam. When he created Adam, he breathed a spirit into Adam. On the day of Pentecost, God, when Jesus blew on his disciples, he breathed into them life again, but this time he breathed them life with power to overcome that which Adam had relinquished. In doing so, he restores God's original intent. When the life of God is breathed into us, we become his true image bearers, just as Adam was. Remember in the garden, God, Jesus says this, and let us create man in our image. Let us create them both man and woman in our image. When Jesus breathed on his disciples and he said, receive the Holy Spirit, at that moment they became spiritually regenerated to be the image of God. When you and I accept Christ as our Savior and the Spirit of God lives and dwells within us, at that moment, life is breathed into us and we are transformed once again to the image of God, to be His image bearers, to be His ambassadors, and we are able to walk in power and authority that unfortunately we don't really believe we have. Because if we believed we had the power and authority we have, we would be out on the street a whole lot more than we are. We wouldn't be afraid of people laughing at us or mocking at us or looking at us as strange or saying, you're way too zealous. One of the things in listening to that Keith Green story yesterday, you know, his wife Melanie was talking about it and some of his friends talked about it and said, Keith was just way too zealous. They couldn't shut him up. He couldn't help himself. But you know what he did? He was so zealous that when he found a homeless person on the street that had no place to sleep or eat, he brought them home. He didn't say, hey, honey, I brought somebody home for dinner. He said, hey, honey, I brought somebody home to live. So they own this little three-bedroom house in this neighborhood out in the valley, just like 1,200 square feet. They eventually had 17 people living in a three-bedroom house, sleeping in the garage, sleeping in the backyard, and so they said, we got to do something. So they bought the house next door and started moving people in there. All of a sudden, more people are showing up. So they ended up renting five more houses on that block. 
The entire neighborhood was the people nobody wanted who Keith and Melody just loved on because they walked in the peace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, they were fulfilling their purpose. We need to make sure that we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit to become image bearers of Christ in this chaotic world. By laying hands on people and healing them, by imparting the word of God to them, to tell them that Jesus who came from God as God in human form suffered and died for this, their sins and that they can all have eternal life. This person, this power is our only hope for accomplishing our purpose. And Jesus, the purpose is very clear. Here he said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. We know as a Jesus ascended to heaven, you know, he says, go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them and making them disciples. That is our mandate to go. I always laugh, laugh about this and kind of joke about it because every time, you know, Jesus does something, we were talking about angels and demons these last few weeks, you know, um, when, when the demons recognized who Jesus was, he had to tell them to be quiet because he didn't want the demons going and telling everybody that, yes, this is the Messiah. He wanted them to receive it by faith. And every time Jesus healed somebody miraculously, whether it was the lepers, raised people from the dead, he always said this. He said, okay, here's the deal. I know you're happy, but don't tell anybody. And every time, they just couldn't help it. He'd say, don't go, and they would go tell somebody. The next thing you know, he had a crowd, which is what he didn't want. And then he stands there with his disciples. He's going to heaven. He says, okay, it's time now. Go and tell everybody. And now nobody's telling anybody. Maybe he should have told us we couldn't share. Maybe he would have done it then. But here's the reality. When we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can fulfill our purpose. Our central purpose for existence is this. As the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. I don't care what your job is. You know, I, I don't care what your college degrees are or aren't. I don't care how much money you make or don't make. It doesn't matter what field you're in. We all have the same purpose. We all have the same exact purpose. Years ago, um, Lauren Cunningham got together with Dick Eastman. And they both had these in incredible ministries. And, um, but they all were missions ministries. And uh, they said, we have to come up with a message to where everybody knows they're a missionary that not just the ones to go to foreign lands. And so they started talking about how we can find missionaries in, in the seven mountains of culture, the seven pillars of culture. And they said, if you're an educator, you can be a missionary to educators. If you're in the financial world, you can be a missionary to finances. If you're in the arts, you can be a missionary to in the art, <coughs> arts world. And they went down these seven pillars. And some have twisted today to, to where they've said now these seven pillars are that once the church has reclaimed all seven pillars, Jesus is going to return. That's not what the Bible says, and that's not what these two men meant when they came up with it. What they were saying was this. Whatever your advocation is, whether you are a, a plumber, a painter, you know, a, a teacher, a preacher, whatever your advocation is, your real vocation is to tell people about Jesus. That's our purpose. That's what we're all called to do. Doesn't matter where you work, 
doesn't matter where you live. doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, how smart you are, how dumb you are, what education you have, what education you don't have. We all have the same purpose. And that purpose is this. As the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. That's how Jesus could say to his disciples and to you and I, he says, and the works that I do, you'll do also, but greater works than these you will do because I go to my Father. How can we do greater works than Jesus? We can do it. It's not greater in magnitude because there's nothing greater than, you know, taking all our sins and being raised from the dead. There's nothing greater than raising a dead man or causing or making eyeballs out of mud pies. What he's saying is it's greater because that was one Jesus. How many are in this room? What if all of us made eyes out of mud and created eyeballs? What if we laid hands on dead people and they rose up? He says, the works that I do, you will do also, but greater works than these because I go to my Father. In other words, there's more of us. We're going to be here a lot longer than he was, and we're going to see a much greater magnitude of his work. And my question is, if we were given a report card, if we're given a self-evaluation sheet and says, okay, let's go down. Let's look at the works of Jesus that he said you're going to do. How are we doing? That is our purpose. That is our purpose. We make a living so that we're able to help other people find life. And so we can't forget that. But let's go back. If you are not at peace with God, you will never be able to walk in power, and you will never be able to walk in your purpose because you'll spend your whole time trying to find peace. And the only way you find peace with God is to understand how deeply Jesus loves you, has always loved you, and how his prerequisite is not to get perfect, his prerequisite is to accept his perfection demonstrated through the cross. Once you have the peace to know that Jesus likes you, that Jesus always loves you, he loved you before you loved him, he loved you while you were still in your sin, his love for you doesn't change whether you're a sinner or saint, his love is perfect. Once you can walk in that confidence, and then you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you, Fear will not be a part of your life. Just as he said, peace be with you, the fear to tell people about Jesus goes away. Because you're at peace with him, because you have the power of the Holy Spirit, you can fulfill your purpose. Jesus is sending us to extend his peace, his light, his truth, his life into the world. If you have friends who are in turmoil, if you have friends at work who are struggling with issues in their life, if they don't have peace, it's because they don't fully know the Prince of Peace. And if they accepted Christ as their Savior, they don't fully know who they are in Jesus so that they don't experience peace. And it's our responsibility to make sure they have peace so that they can walk in power and they can walk in purpose. This is our greatest purpose. In the peace of God, by the power of God, to do the will of God for the glory of God. Because, see, none of this... We don't, we don't have a, you know, a supernatural sword where we put a notch on it each time we do something for the kingdom. It's not for our glory to see how much we've done. Everything we do is for his glory. The more we lift him up, the less we become, which is what this is all about. That's our greatest purpose, to do the works of Jesus, to bring glory to the Father. And I'm praying that God would do this for you and God would do this for me, that we will make Jesus our peace that we will make Jesus our power, that we will make Jesus our purpose. In that order. So I just want to pray right now. In fact, I want you to put your hand on the person next to you.
Father, I pray right now for everyone in this room, myself included, hands on my head. I pray if there's anyone in this room who does not have peace, God, that they will not leave today without peace. That they will have the revelation by the Holy Spirit that true peace comes from peace with God. Not peace with the world, peace with God. And peace with God was established through Jesus who is our peace. Jesus already took care of all the turmoil. If we come to the Father through the Son, and we say, Father, here I am, broken. Here I am, Father, sinful. Here I am, Father, all that I am, I lay before you. And he simply touches us. He says, I love you. Peace be with you. No longer be afraid. Father, that those of us who walk in the, understand the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would not have it be something that we carry around in our holster every day. We instead, God, will walk with it in our hand, walk with the power of the Holy Spirit in our heart, walking in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, by the Spirit, to know that we are, our purpose in life is this. When that alarm goes off at 6 o'clock in the morning and we're showering, getting dressed, get in our car to drive to a place that gives us a paycheck, our purpose is not that paycheck. Our purpose is the people in the building where we get that paycheck. Our purpose is the people we talk to on the phone. Our purpose is that lunch appointment. Our purpose is that person on the freeway who's having an awful day and the Holy Spirit says, pray for that car right now. God, that we would walk in our purpose, but we can't do without peace. So, Father, just breathe your peace upon us. I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, reveal to each one in this room who's in turmoil. Reveal to them what lie they have believed that's caused them to not have peace with you. Just bring it to their mind right now. Jesus, assure them in the midst of this, if they will give that to you, whatever, if it's a fear, if it's a sin, if it's a weakness, if it's a doubt, they just give it to you right now and say, I give this to you, Jesus, that your answer to that is, here's my peace. Holy Spirit, be upon you. Go in power. Go in purpose. So, Father, we want to stand before you and simply hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Our purpose is to be faithful to you. So I ask God that we will be a people who live a faith worth dying for. That we will go where you tell us to go. We will speak when you tell us to speak. And we will never stand in fear because we have your peace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.